Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The philosophy of sex. Welcome to the philosophy of sex. Long play. I'm your host, Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Have you ever thought about the relationship between time and pleasure? Sex and pleasure are temporal experiences, meaning how we relate to time can impact how frequently we experience pleasure both while we're having sex and when we're not. As philosopher William James suggested, time is something we can sense. He said, a day full of excitement will pass ere we know it. On the contrary, a day full of waiting, of unsatisfied desire for change, will seem a small eternity. Our consciousness, he argued, is like a stream that can include past, present and future sensations at any given moment. Our perception of time is dependent on our flow of consciousness, whether we are attached to what was, living in the moment or are in anticipation. If we are in a constant state of distraction, Experiencing pleasure will be extremely difficult. And in a world where pressure on our pace of living and attention is seemingly ever-increasing, connections with pleasures past, present and future is pretty difficult. These concepts can be seemingly esoteric, but as this week's guest, embodiment and somatics coach Euphemia Russell reminds us, by understanding how we relate to time and spaciousness, we are able to cultivate more pleasure in our lives. You might have heard Euphemia in our previous episodes. This week, I invited Euphemia back to unpack the themes of their new book, like what a pleasure spectrum is and how to cultivate pleasure and connection as individuals and as a community. Euphemia talks about exploring the depths and boundaries of your pleasure, and we also answer some guest questions about embodiment. Euphemia grapples with many of the harder-to-grasp elements of sex and sexuality and shines a light on the importance of reconceiving of pleasure as not just something we experience during sex, but as something available to us in unexpected moments. Please enjoy our conversation. wanted to begin by asking you how you started your journey into becoming the pleasure educator that you are now. I wish I had. Well, I don't wish I had, but I think a lot of people expected me to have a simpler story where there was this moment that just sparked everything and my life was changed. But it was a much more gradual process that was personal, but also collective longing for more representation of the things that I was looking for. And I think like many people's experiences, I was looking to create what what I saw missing and what we all deserved. So in my author's note in my book is the first time I actually have spoken about 
my experience of how I came into this work and how all the different stages and ways that I was influenced. And I tend to not talk about it too much. I also just tend to not talk about my personal experiences in my work too much. Um, always wanting to normalize, but not wanting people to believe that there's only one way to do this work or one way to experience pleasure. But I'd say the overall experience is that I have continually kept peeling back the layers of the assumptions that we have around pleasure and finding that I have gone much more into somatics, which is a word that's used often. So I'll describe how I talk about it, which is the idea of seeing ourselves as a whole. And often people think it's body focused because that is something that we don't give as much attention to in this world. But actually somatics means including ourselves as a body and as emotions and as the mind and as spirit. And I have shifted a lot more into that since I began this work. And I've also shifted a lot more into seeing pleasure beyond sexual pleasure. So there's been various seasons and cycles and shifts and changes even since I started this work. So that's a long answer to say that I'm ever evolving, ever emerging, and there's never been one moment that I could pinpoint it to. Mm. I think what I find interesting about you as a pleasure educator in contrast with a lot of sort of sex educators that you see is, as you mentioned, the sort of separation between yourself and and how you educate where often educators are coming from a place of sort of their own experiences, which is definitely one way to do it. I think there's a lot of merit in sort of autobiographical narrative and, and sharing stories to create understanding. What was sort of the thought process for you when you were deciding to educate in that way versus speaking from sort of personal experience? I think it was from my own experiences of engaging with people who have, who had done similar work in the past and it felt like there was this revering or a, a power dynamic and all power is not bad I think it's just being able to recognize it in all its different forms but it felt like there was a sense and I had the experience of being on the receiving end where there was this idea of here is this person who knows about pleasure and if we follow the way that they do it we'll end up in the same place but I believe that pleasure is so intimate and so personal and so vast and why I talk about the idea of a pleasure spectrum and that we are ever evolving and emerging, as I said, that it's impossible to copy someone else's experience and it be the same. And so I have shied away from sharing my own experiences because I haven't wanted it to feel prescriptive or I haven't wanted people who have felt like they haven't had access to information about pleasure to look towards someone else. And so much of the work that I encourage is about pausing and listening to yourself and your own body. And I think that we can get distracted if we're looking outwards and moving towards someone else. So the whole idea is that I encourage my clients to do is to hold a space for them 
to be able to listen more deeply and trust themselves more deeply and then see what emerge is from that place. And I don't think that they're necessarily at odds. Like I could share my experience a lot more, but I also really value privacy and allowing space for me to be able to keep evolving and emerging and shifting and being the complex dynamic person that I am that's also separate from my work. Mm. It's a really important point, that last point, because often we expect sex educators to be these really sexually explicit beings Mm. when actually that's totally counterintuitive to the point that a lot of sex educators are trying to make, that it's Mm. much more about individuality and defining sort of who you are and what pleasure means to you. So, yeah, I, I really like the way you articulate that. But I wanted to ask you a question around time and sort of pace and disconnection. Um, reading through the book, the way you discuss pace and slowness is is really interesting to me because I feel like sort of your central thesis for the book really revolves around humanity's relationship with time. Mm. So I wanted to ask you what your relationship with time is like, but also ask you about sort of our wider crisis of pace and disconnection that you talk about Mm. you always have the best questions (laughs) thank you (laughs) it's always a pleasure (laughs) yeah I think it's hard to explain without getting too philosophical I think time and space (laughs) is the same thing yeah but people have a greater concept of time and pace than they do space and basically I talk about pace and slowing, that it's not the only way, but it's that a choice that we don't make as often because society defaults to fast. So it's like how to create more space for slowness in a world that doesn't encourage it or um, prioritize it. And that when we have more time, we have more space. And when we have more space, we have more ability to tune in to what is happening in ourselves in that moment. And when we have more space to tune in, we can develop and deepen a nourishing relationship and connection to ourselves and our bodies and to each other and to the land. That is the greatest, deepest why of my work is that I'm a commitment to aliveness and nourishing connection for all beings. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because... In the book, right at the beginning, you talk about these sort of two different conceptions of time that the Greeks had, the Kronos and Kairos, Mm. which I thought was really interesting. I hadn't actually heard of Kairos before. So correct me if I'm wrong, but Kronos is sort of the measured time and Kairos is a more of a felt and experienced time. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems to me your work is tapping much more into the Kairos but I feel like that's not a type of time that a lot of people would understand. So can you sort of explain what is meant by that a little bit more? Yeah, the simplest way I would explain it is a moment that feels elongated because you are savoring it. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think another thing that I found quite interesting about that is that obviously there are a lot of sort of indigenous conceptions of time here in Mm. Australia and and in lots of other places in the world that are sort of 
non-linear in some cases they're cyclical in some cases it's just totally non-linear in every sense of the word so I think it's it's also tapping into that and giving people a way to experience time in such a different way which I think is very interesting when we live in a world where if you asked most people what they wanted more of they would probably say time and time (laughs) could be it could be a way that they could get more money or it might be a sort of a a pathway to different things that they feel they want and need but it does always seem to come back to this really core idea of our relationship to time and wanting more of it is that something that you find comes up in your work quite frequently I think what comes up is actually space. People wanting more moments to feel connected. If I I had to really simplify it, it comes back to a quality of a quantity. Yeah, which definitely doesn't require more time necessarily. (laughs) It requires more presence and attention and capacity to be with the moment and to be with the sensations and feelings and thoughts that are right here, right now for us, which requires practice in a world, in an attention economy and in a world that doesn't offer that to us. We have to take is a strong verb, but we have to invite or prioritize. Yeah. And then I guess that it's most simple core form. How would you distinguish between time and space without getting too sort of esoteric um (laughs) which I know can be really hard to do with concepts like this but because I feel like it's really central to what you're conveying in the book how would you sort of delineate those two things Mm. must say this is deep deep shit (laughs) (laughs) I'm like this is beyond the book (laughs) yeah we are on a podcast called The Philosophy of Sex, though. You really live, <laughs> if, you really live if your there's a space. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I'm going to feel into that. Yeah. In myself do. in this moment. Yeah. The embodied experience of time and space, and of course, they're not, they're inextricably linked. They're not different. But if, I was to speak to my embodied experience of those two words and what they conjure up for me, maybe very different to other people's response to this, but I think of space as centered, an experience of being centered in oneself, but connected to the world around you. That you do not, space does not exist without the negative space. It doesn't exist without other space and other moments in time and space. Whereas time, of course, there are many different concepts of time, as you were saying, culturally and quality and obviously the ever-emerging concepts that we have scientifically of time and how it's completely different to what we've thought. But I would say there's a propelling, there's a moving forward And the embodied experience for me feels up and out and forward, whereas space somatically feels down and open and grounded and interrelational. That's the way that I experience it in my body and with 
the experiences I've had in my life. And it's interesting because a lot of my somatic training and a lot of my somatic work is about how to be back and down and connected to yourself and how so much of our life and our world is about being up and forward and outside ourselves. So that was really beautiful to feel into that. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, for indulging me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll probably have a different answer tomorrow, but hey, here we are. <laughs> That's the whole point, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to, and I think this actually translates quite well from what we were just talking about, about sort of the difference between sex and pleasure. How do those two things differ for you? Obviously, you talked about how in your work you sort of began focusing more on sex and Mm -hmm. that sort of transferred throughout your career and your path. So, yeah, how would you differentiate those two things? I think that sexual pleasure is a type of pleasure and there's a vast, as I speak about, there's a pleasure spectrum or there's a dial of choices and possibilities that we have for pleasure in every moment and sexual pleasure is one of them. But pleasure in general is much more vast and can be felt in any moment, in any capacity, when we do pause and listen and be like, oh, I thought I only had one choice, but actually I have many more choices than I thought when, and that takes practice to, to realize that, that we have more choice than we think. Yeah. And In terms of sort of non-sexual pleasure, what might some examples of that be just to sort of quantify it for people? That could be mental pleasure. So that could be some people may see that as imagination or fantasy or stimulation. It could be emotional pleasure. It could be sensual pleasure, so of the senses, And, of course, every sense has so many different possibilities for what that pleasure can look like. Mm. And many people can have combinations of mental, emotional, and physical pleasures and how they come together very specifically for them. So perhaps, for example, like a smell creates a whole imagination of a lover, for example, like, oh, that smell reminds me of this person and it brings back all these beautiful memories of pleasurable moments I had. So I think that pleasure is not always just like savoring as well. It's not always just present time. You can receive pleasure from something that's already happened. You can savor pleasure in the past, the present and the future. So coming back to that, that conversation about time and space yeah, I think it adds a whole nother dimension to how pleasure can be. So that's a, a much bigger answer. But I would I would say I often work with my clients for them to to find their pleasure library. So I would give them the exploration of going through each sense and listing things that is specifically to them that they love and that they savor. Because when we are stressed or when we are disconnected from ourselves for whatever reason we completely forget who we are and what we like. And so actually writing down their pleasure library for each sense or for their mind, emotions, 
feelings, past, present, future, can create a reminder of, oh, wow, the possibilities for pleasure are endless, but here are some things that can be available to me every day if I remember to prioritize them and to feel them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a sort of like other any form of gratitude practice as well, right, that we know can be pretty powerful as having an understanding of previous pleasures but also future pleasures as well, as mm. well as what you can feel right now. Mm, totally. Something yeah. my nesting partner, so one of my partners I live with, every night at dinner we ask each other, what is a moment that you savored today? And then you get to experience that moment again and it accumulates. So something wonderful in your day allows a moment of intimacy and connection between us and whoever we are having dinner with, but it also allows us to relive that moment and savor it again. And I think that that's beautiful to keep building those rituals that remind us to enjoy and to savor. Mm. Yeah, well, when when it's constantly on to the next thing, that's um, it's pretty challenging mm-hmm. <laughs> to do, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it goes against our biology, you know. Mm. Hedonic adaptation, yeah. which is a very fancy term for saying like a treadmill of being like, okay, I've done that thing and I'm on to the next, that has served us and that has served us to stay alive and continue on as a human and as a species and but doesn't necessarily allow us to enjoy it it keeps us alive but it doesn't keep us in the moment and so I think we have to have practices and rituals and reminders to appreciate or savor what is happening and not just jump on to the next thing I love that you brought up the biological component of it because there's actually a sub question to one of my questions oh. that I wanted to touch on later that brings <laughs> up exactly that so <laughs> you're ticking all my boxes today <laughs> before we go further and I think our sort of earlier conversation sort of touches on some of this but I wanted to ask you about sort of your philosophy of of sex I guess I like th- that you've used the term philosophy sort of throughout the book, um, put the book forward as sort of a new form of philosophy around sex and sexuality. Obviously, philosophy doesn't have the greatest reputation when it comes to dealing with sex and sexuality. There's been a lot of negativity projected towards sex sort of Mm. throughout time, really, from philosophers of all different sort of denominations, for lack of a better term. So how did you sort of go about forming your philosophy? What's formed it and and fit into it as you've grown? Experiencing it, witnessing it in others, being in spaces with others while we create new ways of being together and seeing what is possible. So I'd say the book is very much a combination of philosophical, but it's also incredibly practical. So after every subsection, there's a reflection question or a practice. So it's receiving the information intellectually and mentally, but then it's saying, okay, and now feel that. Now ground that in your body and see what appears for you. Because I can say what I think about this and what I've observed in others, 
but what is it for you right now? What I find so compelling about that and one of philosophy's issues and I think one of the main issues why it struggled to deal with sex as a concept and a reality is because it's very much about this sort of dualism separation of the mind and the body. It's about being logical, rational, and not allowing sort of impulses and pleasure to be part of that experience. It's completely disembodied. And so it's it's really a, a reinventing of that, which I think is pretty radical in a lot of ways. Mm. It's not new, though. There's challenges with somatics because I think that a lot of what we believe about the mind and the body and the self and pleasure are colonial constructs. And before colonization, there are so many cultures who knew this and upheld this and value this. And as we decolonize, we must remember that there are so many cultures who have maintained this type of connection and understanding despite all forces of colonization. And so as a white person, I'm talking about myself, in the world of somatics, it is inextricably linked with colonization and me being aware of the fact that actually this knowledge and wisdom and understanding has been available for millennia. And I'm coming back to it through the guidance of people and cultures and people who have been connected to this knowledge and have been ignored. And I think that's a much bigger topic, but it's not radical. It's the essence of existence in many ways. And that through colonization and through capitalism and through structures that have led us to that chronic disconnection to ourselves and to each other and to the land, we have forgotten it. Yeah. Who has informed how you educate and your approach to somatics and your understanding, I guess, of sort of some of the cultural I don't want to call them alternatives because, as you say, they're not alternatives. They're almost more of a, a true essence of existence. But who's kind of informed how you've shaped your approach? Gosh, so many people. As I said in my acknowledgments for my book, that there are generations of people who have done this work and have existed in this way that I am inheriting and learning from and that my work kind of crosses over pleasure and semantics and embodiment and to some people that may sound potentially all the same thing but in some ways they are quite different but I would say that that it's a constant process of me listening to elders and also listening to myself so that I can understand it in a way that I can feel and relate to. There are many key people in my life who have very much changed the way that I educate in terms of being non-judgmental and wanting to combine a science with experience 
my background is in community cultural development. So my background is in in engagement with communities through a social justice lens. And that that inevitably also has deeply impacted my work. So there are so many people across so many areas who have influenced my way of bringing together these topics and experiences that I could list many individuals, <laughs> but there's also many schools of thought too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what's um, what's interesting about that is that you are pulling in knowledge that goes beyond just the realm of sort of conventional understanding of, of sex and sexuality and, and pleasure and things like that. And I mean, I can't see how you could argue that that wouldn't enrich the work that you do in, in a myriad of, of different ways. Definitely. I mean, this is not my, this is not my quote and I actually can't remember who it comes from and they talk about it in a different context, but I relate it to pleasure instead. But when you pull on the thread of pleasure, you pull on the whole tapestry of life. Like pleasure is not disconnected from everything else and being in a body is inevitably connected with everything because you have every experience in your body. No, it's a, a beautiful way of putting it. So what is a pleasure spectrum? <laughs> <laughs> That's my way of trying to explain something I don't necessarily talk about explicitly other than just hold, being able to hold complexity and contradiction um, in the book is that we live in a world that favors binaries. And whether it be right or wrong or off or on or man or woman, all of these ways that we feel like there's a clear cut. And basically what I'm trying to allude to with the term pleasure spectrum is that we have choice. We have so many choices for how that can look and feel beyond our defaults of thinking life is fast or thinking that pleasure is sex or believing that it has to look a particular way. So that's shorthand for trying to say your pleasure is a very intimate experience that is different from other people's and it's a lot more complex than we often acknowledge. Yeah obviously you have sort of an, an individual pleasure spectrum, but is there sort of a, a collective pleasure spectrum as oh, well? yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yoo-hoo. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we love that. <laughs> and one thing I, I wanted to ask as part of this is, obviously the book is called Slow Pleasure. You talk about slow not necessarily meaning soft I think mm-hmm. one thing that some of these ideas can conjure up is um, sort of with words like pleasure and slow and things like that it does bring up this idea of sort of softness mm-hmm. can you explain what you sort of mean by slow doesn't mean soft and how that fits within sort of the idea of the pleasure spectrum mm-hmm. yeah so in one section I talk about how pace is different from intensity so for example a pleasure could be done slowly but it could be done really intensely and the fact that it's slow can make it even more intense the first example that comes to mind is like 
pull in on a nipple where you could do that really quickly but softly or you could do that really slowly but with a lot of pressure and intensity and the slower you do it the longer that experience or that sensation Mm. and it can make it feel more intense yeah I like the way that you talk about that because it conjures up sort of the idea of qualities almost and thinking about what qualities you want your pleasure to have and that could be any mix of as you say intensity softness there could be a quicker pace or a slower pace which I think relates back to your idea of the pleasure spectrum which is that that's all a choice Mm -hmm. how you experience those things is completely up to you to define Totally. Yeah. And, you know, you could add so many more variables to that, like rhythm um, and quality of touch and temperature and non-touch sensations. Mm. So, yeah, the variables are limitless. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a much more fun way of thinking about it, I think. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> absolutely and a much more a much more liberating way of thinking about it I think mm. so what would your advice then be for people that sort of want to explore their pleasure spectrum it always comes back for me to one practice that is simple but hard to remember to do and I often suggest to people that they build it in to their day with something that they already do so it triggers that memory or reminder by association or make a note or a reminder alarm on their phone and the practice is to ask yourself the question in that very moment how can I bring more pleasure into this moment or this action or this process and when we practice pausing and listening and exploring our choices for pleasure in every moment. We become aware of what possibilities we have, what choices we have, and that we have that spectrum and dial of possibilities. And maybe we believe we only have one choice in that moment before we stop. Mm. Yeah, I really like that idea of the dial. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's something about it that has a sense of autonomy to it that I think is quite interesting where sort of you're in control of of the dial, Mm -hmm. which is nice. Yeah, and I think people who are socialized to please or socialized to default to others for safety or for belonging – or for a sense of dignity, it can be really hard to be connected to oneself and see that we have more choices. And of course, with stress and trauma and shame and guilt, our choices often feel more limited because of our beliefs around pleasure. Yeah. Continue. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose I can leave it at that. But each time we remember is an undoing or a 
remembering that we have more possibilities for pleasure than the world has socialized us to believe. It's interesting because if you do look at a lot of the way pleasure education and more specifically sex education is sort of put out into the world at the moment, it is very quick tip, hot take, Mm -hmm. focused. Do you think that that is the case because it is feeding into our conditioning around wanting to know what's acceptable of us? Do you think that's the driving force or do you feel like it's it's something else? Do we not want choice? <laughs> mm. Do we just want scripts? Yeah, that's such a great question. And I think from my observation, it's various things. One is speed and efficiency. One is that we want small practices, which are actually often the most powerful if they're repeated, we look for like a a simple solution so that we don't get, get overwhelmed and completely disengage. And that that can be done without the mentality of quick fixes, but it can be harder to access. And then I think there's potentially a part of it where looking for that simple quick fix, one tip, five tips to spice up your sex life from an expert, that kind of framing speaks to a scarcity model and the ways that often are advertising. And I believe people don't do it with malice, but they speak to people's sense of lack or sense of scarcity of, I don't have this. And if you do these things, then you will be more whole or you will have this thing. And it's a slippery slope because when we say do these things and then you'll be this way, when it doesn't happen, people feel as though it's all their fault and that it's their personal problem but not a collective problem. And then it furthers that shame and guilt and personal or isolation around being like, this is my problem that I don't experience pleasure in this way, which is absolute majority of the time not true. Mm. No, I think that's such an important point because there does seem to be this sort of individualism that is influencing how we approach pleasure, sexuality more broadly, which is that the idea of being good in bed, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it seems like a complete fallacy to me, right? Because there's at least one other person there with you if you're sharing space with other people and having experiencing pleasure with other people. So it can't possibly just be up to you. Mm. Another thing, which is actually something that you touch on in the book as well, that I think often means people look more for sort of quick advice is you say feeling more means more feelings (laughs) which I really liked the idea of I feel like we often reach for quick solutions and things like that Mm. because doing the hard messy work of actually getting to know yourself better can feel really shitty and I like that you raise this very explicitly because obviously it is a barrier for people in terms of experiencing their own pleasure absolutely yeah it's intimidating to 
When we tune into our sensations and feelings and thoughts, we make ourselves vulnerable to all types of feelings. We don't just get to cherry pick the joy and the fun and the pleasure. And if you don't feel resource or you don't feel like you have the capacity or support to explore those things, it can feel much easier to to not do that. And I believe there's a balance between having our coping strategies that help us move through things and how wise we are to have found them and repeat those coping strategies. And then also how to keep building our capacity to feel and to be with what is happening for ourselves moment to moment. And of course, not every moment is the appropriate time to do that. But how do we create more space in our life to? reflect and integrate and feel and listen and learn and build our capacity to keep feeling and that I think people feel as though they're going to be stuck in that hard feeling forever and I say to all my clients like pleasure exploration is not just pleasure yeah it's not always pleasurable (laughs) yeah but if you allow yourself to feel then you allow things to move through you. And when you can feel grounded and connected, it will move through you and slide away rather than getting stuck or you getting stuck potentially. And of course, that's not always the case. And I'm speaking very broadly. But when we allow ourselves the space to feel, then we allow ourselves the space to heal and to process as well. Compassion and sort of mindful self-compassions are not things that we're really taught how to do or how to approach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we also don't have the resources that we deserve to do that. And in one part, I wish that my work didn't exist and that we were all inherently resourced in society to move through these things. And also I would always want to have this job in some capacity because there can always be more pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Always be more pleasure. (laughs) I think that leads really nicely into sort of where I wanted to take the conversation next, which is around collective pleasure and pleasure-focused societies. First of all, what is a pleasure-focused society? Let's start there. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, I mean, I leave the book on that note because the last section is about slow pleasure together, which involves sexual pleasure with others, but also involves many questions at the end of the book to be like, I invite hope and imagination of what could that look like? And I think that whenever we gather collectively and even talk about pleasure and allow each other to be witnessed in our pleasure, we are creating a pleasure-focused, pleasure-centered society. And if I was to write another book, which feels completely beyond me right now, I would probably write it about how we can usher in a more connected, more embodied, more 
pleasurable society and collective experience of that. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you was around whether you think we've ever lived in one, we (laughs) being sort of the royal we, (laughs) do you think, I mean, you talked sort of earlier in the conversation about the survival aspect being something that is prohibitive to pausing, savoring, being able to experience pleasure. Do our sort of natural instincts negate us being able to experience slow pleasure? And is that something we have to kind of learn to work through? I feel like my anthropological, historical (laughs) knowledge is not robust enough to speak to this in great detail. I know bits and pieces, but I have a sense based on my experiences and experiences that I have read about or heard about or witnessed. When we create spaces for us to heal together and to be together and to experience joy and pleasure together that is healing the areas in history that have been more collective and have been more connected to each other and to the land and in a sense of reciprocity that there has probably been much healthier more integrated sense of collective pleasure that is beyond sex. I am not necessarily stuck in believing, oh, the simpler times of the past were glorifying them as something that we should all return to. But I think that often people think that sexually we are at the most progressive point in history with sexual pleasure and pleasure and we definitely aren't. We have regressed. I completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree with that. But that's definitely not the sort of dominant narrative of sort of sexual liberation that we're yeah. sold. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Could you explain in what ways you think we have regressed? We have lost a sense of what it feels like to listen to our bodies. And I think that that's a major regression and to trust them and that um, there is a revering of the mind and the spirit and the beyond. I often say that my spirituality is mundanity and the etymology of mundanity, it means of the earth. And yet we see it as like a kind of a baseless thing, like mundanity is boring. Like what more is there? which I think actually comes back to a collective sense of how to savor and how to be with and how to contain and hold the experience of what is there right now for ourselves. And I think we collectively have regressed or lost the ability to savor. And of course, policy-wise and sex education and body autonomy church and state and the ways that church has shaped our laws and policies and institutions in many ways, not in all ways, but in many ways has 
created structural and institutional shame and guilt and disconnection and to see our bodies as something that's medical or a burden rather than a place and experience of great pleasure and possibility. So every question you ask me, I feel like we could have a whole podcast about, to be honest. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) I like what you say about boredom. It reminds me of something that my mum used to tell me when I was a kid, which was that there's no such thing as boredom. (laughs) (laughs) She'll like that you said that too. (laughs) I love that. I feel like all of my, all of my answers and responses to you have been so vague today because you talk to complexity Mm. and there isn't one way or there isn't a simple way to answer any of the questions that you ask, which I think is the essence of who you are and why this podcast exists, because it's not about having answers. It's about exploring what is and could be. Yeah, that's exactly it. I guess a lot of the sort of writings that I find most compelling around sexuality and pleasure more broadly right now is that there needs to be a return to an understanding that this is ambiguous stuff that we're dealing with here. It's nuanced. It com- it's complex. It goes way beyond the individual. It's about how our whole social structures function and impact us. That's what the show is really for is to create space for that. So there's no such thing as vague, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the way I look at it more is just getting down in the weeds and dealing with the nuance of things. Mm. But on that note, shall we move to some question and answer questions? Please, let's do it. I have a few here. The first one that I wanted to start with is one that I feel like you give some really amazing advice around in the book. And this person said, I'm currently transitioning and am experiencing a lot of body dysmorphia how can I use embodiment to help with this? Mm. So for people listening, in case you need more context, body dysmorphia can be experienced and appear in many different ways and many people do experience it. And body dysmorphia can be a disconnection or a feeling unsure about the body that you are in. That can be in many ways. And I'm guessing that for this person who is transitioning, that potentially gender dysphoria, which is the feeling of being distant from or not in accordance with your gender of how you feel and how the world perceives you, are two different things but can often be very interlinked of how am I seen and how do I feel? For embodiment and embodiment practices, without knowing this person's particular experience, I would encourage them to to find more neutral parts of their body that don't necessarily hold loaded stories or narratives or perceptions. And it could be their pinky finger, it could be their elbow it could be their knees, whatever area, and to be with that area and to really feel into the sensation and experience and the nuances that is happening in that place. 
And then if they feel like they have the capacity to what's called pendulate or move into areas of their body that feel like they have more stories or loaded ideas or judgments and how to to be with that feeling and not enduring it, not trying to push through that feeling, but just at whatever capacity they have, whether that's just 5% for five seconds or to be able to linger longer there and just noticing what comes up when you are there and being present with that body part. And then moving back and forth between that more neutral area and the area that potentially can bring feelings of body dysmorphia or gender dysphoria. And then I would say another embodiment practice is allowing free movement. So not seeing it as dance, not seeing it as having to look a particular way, but really just following what feels good. Perhaps that's allowing yourself to be, to express yourself as you wish to be, um, as you wish to feel in your own body or how you wish to be perceived by other people. And that could be to music, um, that could be exploring your strength, it could be exploring a particular part of your body, it could be exploring a, uh, a feeling or a sensation. And at the simplest form, it's just keep following what feels good and reminding yourself that your body is not a zero-sum experience of either bad or good. It is complex, like we've talked about. There are some areas, there are some experiences that can feel so validating and connecting and other moments that don't but that to keep finding moments and places in your body to feel connected and to keep grounding into that experience and reminding yourself of oh my body can also bring me so much pleasure and so much presence and so much joy as well even amongst all of the confusion and challenges that sounds great. I might do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued though in, in the book what, what came to mind for you. Was that something you else? You wrote this sentence sort of at the end of the section, I believe it was, and you asked if your identity was shaped by pleasure, how would it look and feel? Hmm. And I think that's such a wonderful question for everyone to ask of themselves, no matter how they identify but to frame identity within the context of pleasure, I think, is really interesting. And you talk about sort of one definition of it being identity as repeated beingness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's that's also a really, really fascinating sort of concept to me because it makes it so much more permeable. Mm-hmm. I love that. <laughs> yes. So next question, which sort of related to the last one in some ways what is your advice for someone who has intrusive thoughts during sex I feel I feel for you (laughs) yeah and also you are not alone in that experience and also without knowing what those intrusive thoughts are how can you perhaps with solo pleasure, invite them in, those thoughts in with whatever capacity you have to meet them and ask them what they are trying to protect for you. Mm -hmm. And if you have 
the ability and the grace potentially thanking them for what they're trying to protect or what they're trying to serve for you because often our thoughts and our actions that are repeated like intrusive thoughts continue because they have served us in some capacity whether and in many moments they can no longer serve us but they remain and often a way for them to have less grip over us is to acknowledge them and to thank them for what they have tried to do maybe not haven't have done well but have potentially tried to protect us from and see what emerges when you do that and if you have the grace to be able to thank them that can also allow them to soften and see that oh you could literally say thank you for trying to protect me and also there are other ways that i wish to be in this moment so you can chill now and that might sound quite like esoteric but the combination of doing that with somatics and embodiment allows a rewiring and a neurological shift to say oh I can let go or this thought can let go and allow space for something else and of course it's not as simple as that because it repeats to try to protect you and then something else I would say is that if that thought comes up and you remember you can say oh when this thought comes up I am going to gently stroke my arms or I am going to gently or firmly squish my thighs and just start shifting and associating another experience with that. Good, good advice. Mm. <laughs> and I think that partic- that last particular piece of advice, that very much, that's a somatic practice, presumably. Mm-hmm. Someone asked sort of, they mentioned that it's hard for them to experience pleasure during sex, but also it just sounds like they're feeling quite dissociated in general. Mm-hmm. And they were asking how working with a somatics um, teacher or instructor could help. Hmm. I wish I could meet these people and <laughs> learn more of their experiences to be able to really speak to their specific experience. But without knowing more detail and context of, of what happens for them, I would notice where you go. Which direction do you go? Where do you go in your mind or do you go beyond your body? Because when people dissociate, they will go different places. Some people go behind them. Some people go in front and up. I encourage anyone to just notice this, perhaps when they get stressed, when they dissociate, when they get worried or they get frightened, just be like, oh, where does my focus go? Where does my attention go? Where does my sense of self shift? 
and to keep observing the pathway that they find back into themselves, into their body, and to feeling grounded again. And the more that you observe that, the more clearly you can make that pathway back. Because dissociation overall is not not necessarily, I think, as a, as a general experience it's seen as something that people do to cope. But we also, another form of dissociation is like derealization, which happens often. We dissociate and derealize often. So, for example, when we read a book or when we go into our imagination, that is a form of dissociation. And that coping skill, like we just spoke about, is valuable and it protects you in some capacity from feeling in that moment. And perhaps it's repeated and it no longer serves you. Uh, And so finding that ability to have a relationship with it and notice when it does serve you and when it doesn't, and when it doesn't, how you can support it to realize that you have more choices in that moment and how you can make your way back to yourself. And for any of these people who sent in these questions, if you have any clarifying questions or you want to share more, feel free to message me because I often shy away from giving broad advice because it doesn't feel like it does a service. So for example, with my coaching, I only do six-month coaching because the work is so deep and so delicate that it deserves that time and space. So I am very aware that these suggestions that I'm giving now uh, don't have a foundation, but hopefully they have an invitation for curiosity and exploring and also validating the experience that you are having already. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely why we wanted to do this sort of question and answer section was for exactly that. I also think it's important for people to hear about the fact that these are things that we're all going through (laughs) no matter our sort of identity socioeconomic status across the board these are issues that we all deal with truly yes well on that note we might leave it here but a massive congratulations on the book. When is it? Um, give us the details on when it's coming out. It's out for pre-order at the moment, right? It is. Yes. Yeah. So for it depends on the country, but for Australia and New Zealand, it, it is out March 30th, 2022. Mm-hmm. And for the UK, it is out April 15. And then for US and Canada, it is out May 3rd. So it's staggered. I'm glad that Australia and New Zealand gets the uh, the early (laughs) release date. That never happens. (laughs) I know. It makes me happy too. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Philosophy of Sex. And thanks to my guest, Euphemia Russell. You can head to the show notes for more information about Euphemia's book, Slow Pleasure, which is now available for purchase. I'm Caroline Moreau-Hammond. Thanks to Zoltan Fitcher, who edited this episode and wrote the music. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review, or you can email us at info at becoming.me. Don't forget to subscribe if you don't want to miss any new episodes.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 